your prompts and stuff were really good and just um yeah i haven't devoted much time to thinking about them today so forgive me for that but you will discover that i'm pretty good at riffing and rolling so that's exactly what i want (laughs) you know because you don't want people to prepare stuff because when that happens it it sounds a bit scripty no danger of that here (laughs) fantastic Hello there, my name's Emily Anderson and this is Unfinishing. My guest in this episode is Rishi Dastadar. Rishi is a poet and copywriter. His poetry has been published by the BBC, the Financial Times and the New Scientist, amongst many others. His second collection, Saffron Jack, is published by Nine Arches Press and he is also co-editor of Too Young, Too Loud, Too Different, poems from Malaika's Poetry Kitchen. He also serves as chair of the writer development organisation Spread the Word. Rishi has written for many different brands over the course of his career in copywriting and was recently a judge for D&AD, which to you and me is design and art direction. The unfinished project that Rishi is here to talk to me about is called Self-Portrait Postcards. This was a project that started in the relatively early days of Facebook and it involved Rishi writing down all of the statuses he posted on the platform and filling up a great many notebooks in the process. Rishi then collaborated with the designer Matt Busher to create an exhibition of those same Facebook updates. The updates were printed onto individual postcards and visitors were invited to choose one to take away with them. As Rishi explains later in the podcast, there were some intriguing reactions to that invite. Before we got there though, Rishi and I began with a conversation about not finishing more broadly and what value there might be in unfinished things. So I'll start off by asking you about unfinished projects just in general. Mm. Um, You're a poet. I've spoken to other writers and artists before now, and I find that most people do have things that they start and don't finish or things that they've kept private as well. Is Mm. that something that you do a lot of? Yeah, um, almost inevitably. Um, No, I think it'd actually probably be inhumane, actually, if any artist actually finished every single thing that they ever thought of as a potential work or a potential project because that would imply a that they never failed b that they never experimented and c that they had infinite time (laughs) none of which strike me as especially true i think one of the jobs or one of the things you discover you know the deeper into this that you get is knowing precisely that you have to go up a few cul-de-sacs and a few blind alleys to actually then be able to reverse out of them and take something from that and put it into what's next or keep it back for something else or whatever like that so so yeah so there's yeah there's tons of stuff which are which are starts there are tons of stuff which are maybe halfway throughs um and it's always it always to me at least feels a tad um alchemical in terms of how something goes beyond that and moves to moves to a state of completion in even then that first stage of completion is of course never actually complete but you know it's a, yeah. it's easier to finish once you've got a draft in place as it were but yeah there's always plenty of plenty of unfinished stuff um floating around always and you said that that I mean, I agree with you that you would be a robot, essentially, if you finished everything <laughs> that you started. Um, you said there that you, if you don't finish things, it implies that you've never failed. Do you think that unfinished things can ever be successes or is it in their nature that they are failures as projects? I, I, so I think they can be successes as long as you sort of set the context and you set your terms for what success is Mm. and embrace the fact that it might not be perfect or it might be a bit of a curio and that's actually fine and as I'm saying that I'm thinking of the I can't remember its name now was it the no the invention of Laura the Nabokov that was um discovered a few years ago and then published um Mm -hmm. pretty much in facsimile with um with his index cards and there was lots of 
huffing i seem to remember in the reviews <laughs> because oh well we can't actually treat this as a proper nabokov as it's not finished uh, but at the same time it's actually pretty complete and da, 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 what do we do what do we do i think you know i, I love that sort of thing but uh, yeah not uh, not least for the glimpse that you get into working mm. but actually but actually the sense that if it's done correctly and done properly you can claim it as um as something that stands in its own right even though it might not be fully complacent with complacent rather with um with the creator's intended objectives mm-hmm. but i think you know even even something like that has its own interest let's draw another literary example um david foster wallace and the pale king mm-hmm. you know that slight sense that hangs over it that we can't take it as a proper foster wallace novel because it was incomplete on his death and then his editor reconstructing it from various bits and pieces and trying to put it together as best he could discern from from notes and his intentions and the way that the stack of typescript had been left but even knowing all of that it is a tremendous book and it is a tremendous novel you know, some characters might not be fully fleshed out. Some themes might not be fully tied up. But my word, it's um, you know, it stands as a testament to a lot of Foster Wallace's obsessions. It stands as a testament to the some of the plangency and the beauty of his own writing. So it would seem odd to dismiss to, to dismiss things. Certainly dismiss that work as um, oh well, we shouldn't be concerned with it because it's not intent, not finished as he intended it. And please don't take this question as any kind of threat. Um, but he- heaven forbid, if you were to be hit by a bus tomorrow, mm-hmm. what would you want to happen with your unfinished work? Would that be published in the, as in the examples that you've just given, or, or would you want that to stay private? Um, I am vain enough that I think I'd want it to go out, <laughs> but I'd obviously want the editing for Juvenilia to be done yeah and so there is that degree of curation but that said i can't imagine getting to the point of actually burning early work or stuff like that Mm -hmm. i'd hope that there'd be a a sympathetic relationship with with my editor means that she would be able to actually discern Mm -hmm. what's working what's not working and i could leave the assembly to her as it were and of course, there's always there's always plenty to choose from, right? Because what gets published is only ever maybe 10, 15% of what, what actually gets yeah. written. So there's always plenty to choose from. Yeah, I, I, I tend to view a lot of how I work and the way I work as a collaborative exercise anyway. Sure. I'd like to think that that would continue even in that circumstance that I step in front of the 87 tomorrow. <laughs> And and of those unfinished projects that you do have, like that you know the vast majority of of work, is it is it poetry? Is it other things? Is it stuff that would sit within what you do day to day, or is it kind of more experimental stuff? Um, so the day to day stuff, because that's mostly ad agency stuff, yeah. that has to get finished right because yeah, yeah I, I don't get paid otherwise. So that's that's always interesting because there is the pressure there to force stuff out and. Mm the more dreamy fanciful projects that you hope that one day you might be able to find a particular soft client who might be um, (laughs) willing to pay for it those are those are almost always harder to um, keep hold of because you always want your answer to be right for the particular brand the particular budget Mm. at any given moment so Almost in a sense, I never have that many of those sorts of ideas floating around. The things, yeah, or floating around undone. The things that are waiting to happen are well, twofold. One is, yeah, one one is what do the next couple of poetry books look like, and that's always a harder thing, just simply because I wouldn't necessarily sketch out a collection by saying, writing a paragraph, going in this collection, I am going to do X, Y, Z. It's such an inductive process in terms of putting it together. And you have to listen to that little spidey sense that says, A, you have enough poems. Mm. B, they're cohering in a certain way and order. And C, they're doing that and illustrating X, Y, Z themes, X, Y, Z motifs, whatever. And that's very, very hard to necessarily start out with that intention of doing. Yeah, And it's only... Yeah, it's only maybe after two, three, four, five years of writing that you suddenly go, ah, okay, that's what I've actually been writing now. 
that would be harder for anyone to actually discern to go into the yeah. um to go into the Dropbox or go into the um box files of printouts of hard copies of of poems that I have and go aha here is his next book. <laughs> More complete but scarier in terms of letting them out would be the attempts at prose fiction. Those um are there, but there is a reason why I write copy and there's a reason why I mostly write poems and that's <laughs> you know, at least to my sensibility and my judgment, my attempts at prose fiction are are awful, right? And <laughs> and and um those, at least in my creative life, stand out as to me anyway, they're the biggest failures. Those are the things that I have walked away from, you know, the the novel that I gave up after twenty five thousand words or so. Um yeah. the yeah, and the other sort of hesitant starts and the short stories and stuff like that. Those, those, you know, people in the, you know, raiding the Dropbox after I've gone will be like, aha, okay, <laughs> these are at least standalone and complete and I can do them. And some of that gives me a bit of a shudder that we'll stick that out. But my God, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure I'd be, you know, I might be I'm clanking, the, clanking the chains from heaven going, oi, stop it. <laughs> so no one has seen those then? Not really, no. There is, there are bits and pieces that might have surfaced in different places at a time, but no. I mean, so say that a abandoned novel, yeah, only I have ever seen. Yeah. Um, I might have recycled seven hundred words of it to use elsewhere in a poem, but that's really yeah. about it. Yeah, those stand as the big, as the big unfinished things. And did you ever do secret poetry writing? Because I feel as though that's something that a lot of people do, especially when they're younger. And there seems to be almost this embarrassment about admitting that you write poetry, whereas maybe there isn't that embarrassment quite there with writing short stories or prose. Yeah. So so was your poetry ever secret? No, um, thankfully, actually. Um, the embarrassment thing about yeah, contemporary poets, there was a site a couple of about ten years or so, so called um I don't I, I don't call myself a poet. <laughs> yeah, which had interviews with poets. And right there you see the um you see the self effacing nature of, of what contemporary publishing actually might yeah. ask people to do in terms of relation to embracing the title of, of being a poet and um why that might be a positive thing or taken to be something that's more ambiguous violently held which to be honest I've always found strange and I've always found it strange probably because I came to poetry quite late I came to it when I was about uh 27 28 okay so not for me the teenage scribblings or or that sort of stuff I came to it at a point where I could come to it with enough knowledge and force of you know having been sort of writing seriously whether journalism or copy or or other stuff for about a good you know a good 10 years or so at that point I could come to it with the zeal of a convert and actually go oh wow this is stuff that I actually want to be doing yeah. and I could and I could see in it a potential for artistic liberation and revelation that I could not see in doing prose fiction mm-hmm. so so to that end it's never been you know it's never been especially embarrassing to me to, for me to say I am a poet I can't quite see why people would feel embarrassed about it unless you are so, so enmeshed in the idea that proper writing involves 300 pages plus <laughs> and, and, you know, and a book like object. And without being able to claim that, yeah. you can't um, you can't claim the title, which which I've never felt, not least because 80 percent of my week is spent writing things that are a lot shorter than that for people who pay and not under my own name so and no one's no one necessarily turns around and says that's not writing it's really interesting that you said there about coming to poetry later than some people do and i i was struck by the enthusiasm with which you talked about that Hmm. can you put your finger on what is about poetry in particular that gets you so excited so there's a couple of things one is one is the shock of the new. I'm I'm very much a neophiliac, mm. and poetry is still one of those things where it's you are more likely to be confronted with novelty, mm-hmm. a lot more than you are in almost any other given art form. So, mm. and by novelty, that can be the conceit that the poem is doing, the unexpected image, the metaphor that is new to you, and and not least because it's the arena where that sort of illogic 
that suddenly makes sense is absolutely positively encouraged, right? Mm. That gives you a sort of perpetual space for renewal in terms of, oh, well, I can be surprised by this, or oh, well, I can be surprised by this again, which which I struggle to get from other other areas of writing and maybe even other other art forms as well. Yeah. We don't necessarily talk enough about poetry as a mode of thinking and a way of interrogating the world as well. We sort of pay lip service to that romantic idea of, you know, legislator of the world and all that sort of stuff. But there is a sense, and I'm trying not to get too cod mystical here, <laughs> but there is a sense in which every society needs a group of people yeah, who are on the edges of wherever they happen to be. Mm. firms, institutions, families, whatever, cities, whatever, and blend that sort of experiments in language, experimentation with language, with ideas of sound, and almost do that sniffing the wind of what's going on mm. and set out areas that we should be thinking about, exploring, feeling. And some of that can be mystically visionary. Some of that can be future-orientated. So a lot of that can be inwardly orientated as well. Yeah, And so marking out that territory again, and the way in which that doesn't feel as portentous or pretentious as it might do again if it's delivered in a dystopian 300-page novel, right? Mm -hmm. So again, there's a sort of, there's a power and lightness of touch in there as well. And I think the other is just actually that focus on emotion and that sense of, sense of being seen and that sense of getting to the unspoken of one's emotional life one's soul if one wants to be that sort of deep and pretentious about it as well <laughs> which you can't necessarily get anywhere else and that sense of being seen the thing i always talk about with students is the fact that nothing else demands of you that you try and make particular an experience a memory an emotion mm. You try and do that in language that is once as at once new, but also is familiar. And you try and do that in a way across space and time so that someone one week, a year, 500 years from now, reads it and goes, how does that person who never met me know how I feel right? Yeah. And when you set it like that, that's an impossible brief. And I think that's the appeal and the attraction to it as well, that you are trying to, at some level, square the impossible here. And there is no real formula, because you can do that in any way. You can do that through form, and you can do that through exploiting the possibilities of musicality that language has. But you can also do it through through absence, and you can do it through shaping you know, and taking away what's on a page as well, and exploiting those things. So, you know, it is endlessly... It is endlessly fascinating what you can do, what you could potentially do with it as well. And so I think that's why I keep coming back to it and I keep coming back to that, you know, that sort of potential that it has. And plus the fact as well that there is something quite, quite great about the fact that however hard it tries and however hard people try to popularise it as well, it stubbornly refuses the embrace of commerciality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I spend a lot of, yeah, I jokingly call myself, you know, UK poetry hype man, right? you know, in terms of <laughs> in terms of the amount that I bang on in social media and trying to bring poets to the fore and running yeah. around doing lots of other stuff. And you just, you know, bar one occasional bestseller once every 10 years or so, it's very, very hard to get poetry to cross mm. into mainstream readers. And something that, yeah, you'd love to do, but at the same time, I think there's a stubborn respect for the art form that it refuses to do that. <laughs> and so there's something going on just in terms of the fact that people, you know, if people aren't buying it, there's a reason why people aren't buying it. And yeah, we could talk about the influence of popular song and how actually people's deep-seated need for rhyme and musicality and explaining the world through that basically they get from pop music now and that killed yeah. that killed you know modern poetry's popularity in about 1955 right <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah and it's always going to be an abstract concern yeah an abstract and abstruse concern from from here on in but um but yeah all those re yeah all those reasons just make it a fascinating place to be as mm. opposed to any other art 
It's funny what you're saying though about um, popular music taking over from poetry because I always remember ages ago I was doing my A-levels and we were doing Hamlet and it, we were preparing for the exam and it was one of those where you needed to go in armed with memorised quotations yes. um, and someone in my class put their hand up and said um, how come I can remember all the lyrics to my favourite S Club 7 song from 10 years ago <laughs> but I can't remember Hamlet's first soliloquy and I thought it was such a great point <laughs> Um, but I, uh, but yeah, the, the crude answer to that is time, right? Yeah. You know, will would you lay your money that there would be plenty of people who did actually, you know, uh, know quite a lot of the first soliloquy in yeah. the in the sixteen hundreds? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Precisely because of the tricks that we know that Shakespeare was doing in terms of using those techniques that aid memorability. Yeah. That doesn't really change. What changes is the is the force and the amplification and the repetition of that. You know, mm-hmm. you're probably likely to have heard the S Club you know, lyrics a hundred times as opposed to the soliloquy <laughs> like five times, and so yeah. you, know, you know which way the memory is going to go at yeah. that point. But there's not necessarily any inherent difference in the material. It's it, it, you know, it's just relative levels of exposure. I would I would suggest. Yeah, I also think S Club Seven is just far more deep and meaningful as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that <laughs> <laughs> Just a kind of a final, more general question about unfinishing things. Unfinishing things, not finishing yeah. things. Oh, well, um, unfinishing, unfinishing is a very good way to do it. <laughs> to unfinished. Um, yeah, so just a final one on that before we move on uh, to your specific project. You mentioned there various different amazing things that poetry can do. And I was wondering, does your work need to fulfil those things before you consider it finished? And if not, do you have other ways of telling when to stop tinkering with your work and declaring it finished? The short answer is no, because I don't think... I mean, other poets might disagree, but I personally never write a poem to try and achieve all of the potential things that I talked about poetry being able to achieve earlier. That would be wild to think that one poem could do all of that. (laughs) This is where the cod mysticism comes in, and and this is what starts to put people off in terms of, I subscribe to the the vibe and the thinking that the poem is the thing that tells you when it's ready and when it's finished. And that sounds a horrible cop-out, like you're going to go into California woo-woo speak, right? (laughs) But there is... um, there's an element to which where you are having to allow your skills, your expertise, your experience to take you so far, but then you have to consciously or not switch off your rational brain and trust to you know, some degree of subconscious actually taking over as you work on the thing. And again, it's trusting that spidey sense that tells you the thing is done or near done. And Every poet will have a different working process to actually get to that. You know, some people will write something then stick it in a drawer for a year and then come back to it again and yeah. you know, see where it's wrong and see what, it, see what it needs and go for that. I tend to be quite a fast and fluid writer. So mm. when something arrives, it normally arrives quite quickly. Okay. And I can get drafts one to four done almost in something obscene, like sort of half hour, 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. But then it has to go away for best part of three months, six months, a year. Yeah. Until you look at it again and you go, okay, that's wrong. That's missing. That needs to, yeah. Yeah. And there are points at which you come back to it and go, who wrote this? Did I write this? (laughs) I don't don't remember writing, writing that as well. But very much the poem will tell you when it's done. The poem will tell you you need to take more out of me or you've not fully expressed the idea that was powering me or you've not you've not released the energy that was in in me yet or you've not fully landed the thought that you want to land or i'm looking imbalanced and a lot of that is a high fluting way of just actually doing what prose writers would think of and call pretty bog standard editing right yeah you know yeah. things like do your shape do your stanzas look roughly equal on the page mm. yeah do your line lengths look roughly equal do your are your line breaks happening in the right place and not just you know lazily you've just hit return 
And yeah. you know, part of that is aesthetic choice, and part of that will ver- you know, and that obviously varies between poet and poet to, as they as they achieve what they're what they're trying to do. So this is a roundabout way of saying that a lot of what passes for you knowing when something is finished mm. is actually a synonym for you knowing what your aesthetics are yeah. and knowing what you are wanting to achieve within the parameter of of those aesthetics mm-hmm. and that's something that comes over time and that's something that you get to know as as you write more and you get to know yourself as an artist more as mm-hmm. well poets talk a lot about this hasn't found its final form yeah and often just as a drafting mechanism right yeah. people will write in couplets just okay. you know, two by two by two just to get the idea down then you start playing around with them what happens when i collapse this into one long lyric what happens okay. if I put that into stanzas, into quatrains? What happens when I put that into, you know, sestets or whatever, whatever that might be? Mm. Yeah, and you have to go through those sorts of experimentation and playing about just to actually see what's going on with it. Long, yeah, you know, long answer short, the poem tells you when it's when it's mm. done, and it mm. says, yeah, you can't you can't take anything away from me without hurting the poem, and you can't add anything to the poem without hurting the poem. Yeah. Okay, so I want to move on now to talking about your Facebook project. I wasn't sure what to call it. I think the exhibition was called Self-Portrait Postcards. Yeah, that's what, that's what we called it. And that's what it, that's how sort of certainly Matt, the designer that I collaborated with, yeah. um, that's how we always refer to it. But of course, it started long before that there uh, yeah, there was a, there was even a, you know, a dream of an exhibition in mind. Yeah. So could you tell me how that started then? Can you tell me the story of what went on with this exhibition? So I can't fully remember when I got on to Facebook, but it must have been about around 2008 or so, maybe. Um, And the agency that I was working at at the time, because we did a lot of what's in the jargon called customer relationship marketing which is just a fancy way of saying direct marketing okay and so you know part of the remit was to look at new digital channels like facebook like twitter and how do we start to how do we how can we start to use it for our clients what can we start to do with the platform what can we do with it so I wasn't quite an early adopter, but I had to be on it to mm. actually know what the hell was going on and so be able to start looking at it. So, yeah, so so signed up and had an account. And, um, and you know, and I think like almost anyone that you speak to who had, you know, who was on it back in those days, no one had any idea quite what it might do, quite where it mm. was going, only that it was just growing really, really, really fast. And, mm. um, and it was an interesting space at the time but what really captured me just you know from an intellectual thing was the was at the top of the news feed i'm just actually going to open facebook now and have a look yeah um yeah at the top at the top of the news feed where it had the dialogue box mm-hmm. and it's got the prompt there it says what's on your mind mm-hmm. and i always took that as a as an interesting thing of well just what happens if you actually answer the question yeah which may sound at one level banal but yeah. yeah but another way it sort of struck me that it is a thing to be potentially subverted right mm. especially mm. when you know that friends contacts acquaintances are taking it straight and yeah. just doing you know updates on nights out or yeah. people they've snogged or parties they've been to or weddings <laughs> they've had and yeah all that sort of yeah. stuff and not, and almost within that question was a provocation to me in terms of what happens if you could start to subvert it and you use language to be a little oblique about it and a little playful with it and so that's where that's where that started that attitude of not necessarily being straight in replying or answering and um, seeing what happens on that basis Mm. and it must have been a little while after that, that I suddenly had that realization. Well, I'm writing these things, and then of course they're just disappearing. Yeah. So again, it was it wasn't it was more the yeah it wasn't even necessarily a desire to keep them. 
because you know I'm not necessarily writing anything profound or anything earth shattering. But there was I I was just tickled by the notion that you're writing this thing down as a status update, and then something else happens if you then take it and record it in pen and ink in a notebook. Mm. And that's that's honestly as deep as the impulse went and started. <laughs> yeah. And where it starts to get interesting is just the fact that it just carried on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, partly it carried on and on and on because of the type of notebook I was using to record it. And I think, yeah, I think that's a that's an important part of it. Yeah, um, Muji have these lovely little passport shaped sized um, notebooks. Okay. Yeah. And they're probably only about fifty-six pages or so. So, yeah. yeah. So you're getting through quite a lot of them quite quickly, mm-hmm. and so it sort of feels like there's something that's building and building and building as you go through them. The other thing was that I was trying to, at some level, create some sort of demarcation and way of marking time in the office as opposed to time away from the office. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the early days of it, I was getting into a routine of writing them almost first, second thing when I got in you know, to my desk, just sort of having my coffee, and that was it. Okay. And I'd always, um, at the bottom of the page of the notebook, date stamp and timestamp as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts to have a feeling of a journal. It starts to have a feeling of a diary, but again, not quite as well, because yeah. because it isn't just about here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling. I'm deliberately doing other things as well with it. And so some of those other things... So, I mean, let's be clear, it's not that they were always abstract. There would be stuff mm-hmm. like, I'm bloody damp from you know, the commute in, <laughs> you know, or my, you know, I spilled my coffee. Yeah. But there would be other things like oblique references to some, you know, something that I'd overheard. Yeah. There would be there would be things which would almost be incantations to myself. Mm-hmm. There'd be references to the weather. There'd be I might sometimes just actually put a lyric from the song that I was listening to on the walk from the coffee shop to the to the agency. Yeah. Uh, there might be a reference to last night's football match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there might be something coded that only I would ever understand. But yeah. no, you know, no one else would reference to current lover, reference to ex lover. You know, yeah. at that point, it doesn't really matter what, because I'm not writing it for an audience. I'm just writing mm-hmm. it for me, and I'm just writing to see to see how many people then want to sort of engage with that obliqueness. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, not that I've ever done this, but I'm sure if you actually, if I downloaded all my data and started to go through it, you'd see some of the posts which would illicit reactions some would just would sail by and by yeah almost by definition the one which the ones which were more obviously directly emotional though you know ones which talk about being hung over ones which are birthday driven would all be garnering much more attention yeah than the ones which are just much more obviously oblique yeah one of the fun games was always Pick an obscure lyric, see see who amongst your friends actually gets the reference, <laughs> yeah, and actually can identify the song. So yeah. you're starting, you, and so you start to see things like that happening as well, yeah. just by just from taking a quite a, not even a deliberate, but just almost a, a slightly more detached and step back approach to what can you do with this engagement with this interaction, yeah. and not treat it necessarily as just a Oh, well, it is a mode of self-expression, but treat it with a degree of deliberation rather than just a meh. One of the questions that I was thinking about asking you was about the extent to which the fact that you were writing down the statuses shaped what you were writing, but it sounds like it very, very much shaped what you were writing rather than it being the Facebook post came first and then you wrote it down. It was more that you were deliberately crafting these posts not really not really because okay. that was the other uh, yeah it's not like a you know i was you know it uh, because uh, yeah it should be clear the process was always screened notebook okay yeah okay. and so there might be some yeah there might have been some mornings where i woke up with a phrase in my head yeah. and i knew i was going to post it but like i said there'd be other things where it would be uh, i've been drowned in cats and dogs 
yeah. yeah. And that just came from no, no other reason than it had been raining. Yeah, I don't want to imply that there was an overarching sense of archness or deliberation to this. Mm. What it was is that there was much more of a a considered stance that I'm not going to treat that dialogue box entirely straight on and entirely mm. entirely objectively. And yeah. yeah, what I am going to try and do with it is try and subvert it gently, try and subvert it slightly. Mm-hmm. And is there any crossover with the Facebook statuses and your poetry? Possibly. The truthful answer is I've never stopped to actually think about that. Okay. And it might be that, yeah, there were phrases that popped that I put on Facebook and then copied down elsewhere and put into the into the poem notebook or the yeah, the yeah. scratch notebook elsewhere. But I very genuinely can't remember that where I could point to say, yes, this thing that I wrote in 2012 led to this poem of 2015, sure. or whatever that might be. But I think there's probably a link at some level attitudinally, right, mm-hmm. in, terms of, in terms of that desire to subvert, in terms of that desire to take what on the face of it looks like this straightforward means of communicating and immediately try and monkey around with it. And immediately yeah. try and make it a tad more obscure or a tad more difficult to get hold of. <laughs> so yeah, bearing in mind what we were saying earlier about poetry, you yeah, you can see where you can see where I'm going, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it's it's less it's it's less necessarily yeah, a direct link with any particular poems. It's again more that cast of mind, that yeah. sense of how do you step outside of something and look at it from a different angle? How do you turn it round and cast a different light on it so i think the link with the poetic attitude and the poetic cast of mind is there rather than necessarily any any particular any particular poem or any particular any particular stanza and then you did something very new and different with the statuses again when you then turned the notebooks into a whole exhibition yes with the designer matt busher could you tell me how that came about yeah, so Matt and I have been collaborators for a long time now. We're probably getting on for about fifteen odd years. Um, and we met when Matt was um, a student at UAL, and I think I was involved in some sort of brief or competition and stuff. And we just got on like a house of fire. We've been working together and doing stuff ever since. And Matt is great yeah. because yeah, he's got a wonderfully refined aesthetic sensibility. He's you know very rigorous in his thinking. He's very curious in terms of how he goes about solving briefs and solving projects. But he has he has a he has an eye for just the you know for prompting really unexpected thoughts. And mm. I'm pretty sure that one day over brunch, maybe late 2011, early 2012, he said. Yeah, you know, these things. Why don't we? Why don't we actually do something with them? Yeah, and out of that emerged the idea for well, what happens if you actually then took the physicality that is inherent in the notebooks, but then actually made that public mm-hmm. and actually made that available as an exhibition? And so that was the genesis of the exhibition. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm pretty sure that it was Matt's brilliant insight to actually turn each of these things into a postcard as well. Yeah. And that was partly to explore. I th- I'm pretty sure there were yeah, there were iterations where where he was mucking around with could we actually get something where the Facebook feed hooks up to a printer and spits these out on demand. Okay. Um, if you think yeah, this is around the time that there were lots of these sort of early web point two point zero experiments and agencies and you know who were you know exploring how do you start to make the internet physical again, mm-hmm. and so yeah there was a late lamented agency called Berg who were doing lots of um, little experiments around things with little printers and stuff like that. So it was tapping into that sort of vibe as well. Yeah, and in the end, what ended up becoming most practical was the idea, I know it sounds most practical, and <laughs> it really wasn't, in terms of actually printing each of these things individually. Okay, yeah. And 
And I, yeah, I genuinely can't remember the numbers now, but there must have been something stupid like 2,000. Oh my goodness. You know, so 2,000 yeah. A6 postcards, you know, <laughs> each individually different. Yeah. You know, 10 years on, I think about it, and it's just, what? What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> that's a brief, that's more, that's insane, right? Yeah. That's genuinely bonkers. Um, but yeah, that's what it was, right? Fantastic. And, and then once we got going, we got going. And so we um, took over uh, the Myerscroft Gallery, Morag Myerscroft's um, space in East London. Yeah. And we, and we took that over for a week or so. Yeah, and the vibe that was, basically, we invited people to come down yeah. and take, you know, take a postcard away with them, basically. Yeah. So the dream was that at the end of the week, the shelves would be, the walls would be absolutely empty. Okay. And I don't think we quite managed that. There was still probably a couple of hundred left at the end of it. But it was amazing, actually, how many people did come in. I remember vividly people coming in and going, so we can just take one? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. Um, and so you had to get them over that sort of initial hurdle of, oh, it's art, and we can interact with it and that sort of yeah. stuff. But what was really amazing was then seeing how people went through that process of choosing. Yeah. There were lots of people who just looked at one, scanned it quickly, grabbed it, and then went out. Mm. There are other people who would spend maybe an hour just sort of <laughs> looking and looking and looking and looking yeah. and looking before they settled on that and then walked out. The one that really sticks in my mind was maybe the Saturday that I was um, invigilating and a couple came in. And they basically were trying to find a postcard for each other. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Completely blew my mind. Yeah. That they were trying to, that they were using my words to say something to each other. Yeah. And I, yeah, you know, I never, you know, didn't find out what the status of their relationship was or whatever, whatever. Yeah. But I was just so blown away by that, that, that they, th- that they thought that they could see that potential for that sort of, that sort of narrative within. Yeah what was on the walls and which ultimately you know i I am effectively a stranger right but within my words they're seeing something that speaks to them at that point so that yeah that was absolutely mind-blowing and that's just so lovely that something like a facebook status which as you say is normally put up read by a few people forgotten about Mm -hmm. to have that turned into something really special that's incredible yeah yeah Uh, i i think almost that sort of interaction validated and was absolutely justified why we might have yeah. done it in the first place just yeah. to actually show that there is something there is absolutely something around taking what might be thought of and considered to be ephemeral and yeah. then just by putting a bit of deliberation in it into it and putting a bit of substance into it you suddenly make it much more impactful and real and i'm just kind of thinking about the other side of that which is that I'm thinking about kind of my teenage Facebook posts, which mm-hmm. I have actually occasionally looked at and thought, oh my goodness, that is cringeworthy. That is so embarrassing. Isn't it great that no one's actually ever going to look at these yeah. again? Did you find that when you were viewing your old posts at all? Um, not so much. Yeah. Um, again, partly because of that attitudinal stance that I'd taken earlier. And so... Is there truth? Yes. Is there a sense that I've revealed some of myself? Yes. But there's enough coding and obliqueness to it that I didn't feel like that I was nakedly vulnerable or revealing mm. revealing a huge amount to myself. Because again, you know, I'm doing this at a later age with with degrees of sophistication, right? So, sure. so I'm able to build in I'm able to build in degrees of protection. But like all things where you're mucking around with some degree of coding, you're daring someone to come in and uncode that, decode that, and basically find you, right? And you're daring someone to come and say, ah, yes, I've rumbled you. I know your game. (laughs) And and I don't recall actually ever anyone actually doing that. So I probably hid too well. I probably, yeah, I, I probably coded too well. So much of any form of writing, right, is trying to find people who are on your wavelength. Mm. 
and you're casting out this thing that do you yeah this thing where you're asking do you see the world as i see it and you talk there about coding yourself in the statuses and perhaps coding them quite well mm. were there any that were so well coded that when you looked back at them you didn't know what they were about yeah i'm sure there are i i respond really quickly but i i genuinely couldn't give you an example of them because i would need to actually go back through the notebooks <laughs> yeah to actually find and actually go back through but i'm yeah i have in front of me the final notebook that i updated mm-hmm. and so the penultimate one is is and i yeah and i quote just read planet concerns as pianist concerts how's your morning <laughs> question <laughs> now i'm pretty sure that there is no coding in that that is yeah. literally that is literally uh me recording a misreading yeah. But then the final one, the final one, so this is from 12th of March, 2020, 9.54 a.m. Damn, I hate delaying decisions. <laughs> so that's clearly a that's clearly about something, but I have no idea what. Yeah. Right. Again, there's probably, there's probably not too much value to be found in trying to necessarily unpick what I'm trying to say to myself. Mm. The obliqueness is part of the point. Mm. the i don't want to say obscurity but almost the the obfuscation is part of the point yeah yeah if you want to if you as reader want to engage that's great and that might then help me work out what the hell i'm actually thinking about <laughs> yeah and maybe it's so many of them are actually attempts to do that just to encourage that sort of interaction mm. i guess maybe I, d- I did want to check in with you about i've heard the argument made that sometimes the ability that you have on Facebook to look back at old mm. posts, and in fact, there's a feature that will give yeah. you your memories from a certain day, can actually be quite painful for people, yeah. both in terms of nostalgia, but in terms of looking back on stuff that maybe they don't want to have to mm-hmm. look at mm-hmm. unexpectedly. What are your thoughts on that? So, so at one level, how seriously do you take Facebook? Mm. Yeah. How much are you allowing it any platform to control your emotional life Mm. and i know there will be people who are to a greater or lesser extent do do spend so much of their lives on platforms like this that well-being can be affected not in an addiction sense but just in a Mm. like you say that you know it leaves you vulnerable and open to emotional hurt Mm. i mean the other thing that comes to mind is of course nostalgia is a wound right nostalgia is a sickness There is something really interestingly paradoxical about the way in which that a platform that was once the future is now tremendously conservative and mm. uses the past as a way of making you hang around, mm. or at least you know, thinking that it's a way of helping you to hang around. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice. Oh, yeah, the cat was doing that on this day, <laughs> no, two years ago yeah. and stuff like that. And yeah, there's something in there. And there's something in the yeah you know, in the fact that how do you actually get a sense of moving on and pressing on if you've got something that continually throws up that and there was this here is mm. your dead parent here is the yeah. here is the ex girlfriend who's now you know married with two kids you know there yeah. are you know, there are going to be points at which you do have to you do wince a bit and you do hold your breath a bit and I wonder if that relative ability for it to serve up quite statically elements of your past mm. are precisely why people have gravitated towards Snap and Insta and Twitter mm. and TikTok, where effectively the ephemerality is baked in. Effectively, yeah. you cannot keep. You can, yeah, it's a lot, lot harder to go back. Yeah. I'm not on TikTok because of grief. I'm a 44 year old man, um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, yeah. From what I understand, the algorithm works in such a in such a way that it's not going to serve you up your own past videos. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that pretty much covers what I wanted to talk to you about, and some more, which is great. Mm. Was there anything else uh, that we haven't covered that you would like to go into? I think just probably worth saying why this is an unfinished project. Yes, Um, that's a really good question, which I forgot (laughs) to ask you. (laughs) Which is, yeah, 
I think by by the time the pandemic came around, I'd informally set a rule that I would only ever update, do the status update at the desk in the office. Yeah. And only ever write yeah. it down then. By this point, by 2020, I deleted Facebook off my phone. So I wasn't doing it through that because I've been writing, carrying on well after the exhibition. So there's another eight years of notebooks up, up to that point, but mm-hmm. a lot less assiduous about doing it. Almost a, an impetus had run out, but it was still going and still going. Yeah. And then, of course, when we all got sent home to work from home, because I wasn't updating them at home and because I hadn't been doing that for so long, the habit stopped, the habit broke. And that was that. And I had to scrabble around when I knew I was speaking to you to find that final notebook, volume 56. And yeah, and like I said, that, that last date was 12th of March, 2020. And even though in the last 18 months, I've been sporadically back to the office you know, yeah. you know a handful of times the habit has gone okay it's been knocked out completely and i don't feel any urge to start it again and to the point at which where as i look around the study i can see the bag where the other 55 of these notebooks are <laughs> yeah um and i found myself thinking the other day is it time to sling them Am I really going to be trailing these round for the next couple of years, just um, mm. sitting there doing nothing? Now, I'm not sure I'll get that radical over Christmas and chuck them out, but but that that shows you the extent to which the the project has stopped for me. Now, yeah. we could probably get into a, sem- a semantic argument about does it count as finished? Does it count you're mm. unfinished, or does it count as abandoned? Mm. But the fact that it stops and the notebook is only is only maybe what five six pages in yeah yeah that rest of that notebook is blank and so there's something there that makes yeah that in of itself feels unfinished mm-hmm. and i'm perfectly content with that but now you've got me thinking that maybe there is something around the final update or something like that <laughs> to to actually round it off I feel as if that's one that you probably would have to think about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That that, that I don't think could be spontaneous.